When something goes wrong, we have to do something. Or do we? That's what we're going to be asking today in this episode of The Conversation of Our Generation. And before I dive in, I just want to remind you, my name is Nick Jamel, the creator and the host of The Conversation of Our Generation. And today I had on Grayson Quay to discuss his article recently, or his recent article about doing something and the problem with doing something. And the call that we have every single time that something bad happens, whether it's a natural disaster, a mass shooting, anything like that. It just seems like, you know, COVID even, we have this idea that politicians need to do something. But is it really a good way to create policy is the first question. And what are what happens? Does it actually help us to just do something? Or is it maybe that letting things ride could be better? And so we're going to discuss that and more. We dive into some great literature and everything else, else as well. And Grayson Quay, my guest today, is... A freelance writer based in Arlington, Virginia, he earned his master's in English from Georgetown University, which is, or English literature that is, and so that's why we geeked out a little bit on some literature for a little bit in this podcast, but he has been writing uh, on popular culture, politics and elections, civil liberties, and has pub- been published in the American Conservative, Reason, National Interest, and Spectator US. So lots of great credentials here as far as what he's done, but Lots of great ideas as well, and that's what's most important, I think, here at the Conversation for Our Generation is that people are bringing interesting ideas that are and are looking for the truth, and I think Grayson is doing a great job of that. And so I will have links to his article that uh, we reference a lot in this, as well as his Twitter. You can find him at Hemingway, so H-E-M-I-N-G-Q-U-A-Y. And so check him out there as well. His name on there is Ernest Hemingway, which I love because I'm also Ernest Hemingway fan. We did not talk about that, but I do like the reference. And so definitely check him out, follow him there, check out his article and his other work as well. There'll be some links to more about him in the show notes. And with that, let's hop on over to the conversation. And so today joining me on the conversation of our generation is Grayson Quay. Thanks for coming on today, Grayson. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nick. Awesome. And so for people who aren't familiar with you who are listening or watching on YouTube, how about you give them a little background on who you are and what you do? Um, Yeah. So I'm a freelance writer. I live in Arlington, Virginia. I've written for a couple different publications, uh, The American Conservative, Spectator US, Reason, Mm -hmm. uh, Washington Examiner. Um, And then, yeah, I also uh, have an MA in English. So I'm really passionate about literature and kind of writing about ideas and how those intersect with um, political and cultural issues. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Great. And I know we got connected by uh, Stephen Ken. I'd reached out to him about something and he connected us. And so I, I'm really excited to talk to you today because he pointed out this article that you wrote about government having to do something. And I kind of want to dive into that because with COVID, with you know, the recent issues with guns uh, and mass shootings that have happened, that seems to be the cry right now is that we need to do something. Yeah. But uh, I guess, you know, why do you have an issue with the kind of just the call to do something? That's kind of part of your thesis on the article is that that's not really the reaction we should have. Yeah. So the reason I ended up writing this article was uh, kind of three things sort of intersected in my head. And I was like, oh, okay, I see a pattern here. 
So one of them was the uh, big COVID uh, relief or stimulus bill. I've heard it called both and I've heard both names disputed, so I'm never quite sure what to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, $1.9 trillion, you know, for a, a grand total of, I think, um, you know, on top of the $900 billion mm-hmm. or whatever that, that Trump spent as he was going out. So mm-hmm. just trillions of dollars, which is insane. You know, like it's 1.9 trillion. And I've heard people like round it up to 2 trillion. And I'm like, when $100 million is a rounding error, that's yeah. <laughs> kind of scary. Um, so there was that. Um, and I was thinking about that and this um, sort of desire to be seen doing something, right? There were all these articles coming out that Biden's advisors were saying, like, it's better to go too big than too small here. Um, and I thought of two things. One was, um, one of the debates between uh, Obama and Mitt Romney in 2012, where they had this kind of dispute over um, whether it was right to bail out the Detroit automakers early in Obama's first term. And Romney said, well, you should have just let them go bankrupt. They could have gone through bankruptcy and come out stronger. And Obama said, no, that's not true. I had to give them a bailout or we would have lost a million jobs. And the problem there is that there's no way to prove that, right? Unless you invent a machine that can look into parallel universes. Um, so there's kind of a, an epistemic advantage to the person who does something, right? Mm-hmm. The way I kind yeah. of explain it in the article is if you don't do anything and things get worse, you're, you're screwed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you do something and things get worse, you could have just said, you could just say that things would have gotten even worse if you hadn't done anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like both those counterfactuals that, I mean, cause really Romney and Obama then are saying, here's what would have happened, you know, if this didn't, if we didn't bail them out. Mm-hmm. So they're basically saying the two polar opposites of what could have happened. And you really can't prove either of those, but there's yeah. one that you can, like you said, you, you can actually attribute then to, you know, Obama, the fact that he saved these jobs because he spent this yeah. money. Whereas, <laughs> you know, if, they went to bankruptcy. Some people got laid off, but brought back on, you know, during COVID, you know, my wife's dad works in the steel mills up in Northern Indiana and stuff. So, you know, it's kind of been that sort of thing, like back and forth because of production. And so that sort of thing happens in those kinds of industries. It's like, you can't really attribute that to political inaction, really. It, the yeah. people don't make that correlation very easily. Yeah. Um, it's like, uh, I forget which Narnia book it is. I think it might be Don Treader where Lucy asks Aslan, like, what would have happened if I'd done this? And he goes, you know, my child, no one's ever told what would have happened. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love the C.S. Lewis. I've, I've been uh, yeah. watching, I've actually been watching those movies recently with my, we've been going, my wife and I have been watching uh, Lord of the Rings movies and the Chronicles of Narnia movies recently. Okay. And she hadn't nice. wa- seen them. And I was like, well, <laughs> we got to go through these then because <laughs> this is great stuff. She's read the, she's read the books, right? For Narnia, at least, you know. No. Oh no! no. I read you watch the kid. movies without reading the books. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I need to actually find those because I think they're up somewhere in my mom's attic. I read them as a kid. Um, probably the only <laughs> books I ever read were <laughs> The Hobbit and Chronicles of Narnia books, all the way through at least. I was good at starting books and stopping them as a kid. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but well, I can yeah. I can nerd out about C.S. Lewis all day, but it might be good to stay on topic. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we can always come back and uh, do that sure. again, or or you can always reach out to Pints with Jack. I'm sure uh, <laughs> David Bates over there would love to have you on. Yeah. So there was actually a there was actually a third thing that kind of intersected with me for writing this article, and that was something mm-hmm. my wife actually told me about, which was uh, so my wife's from New Jersey, 
And it was this law that came into effect in New Jersey right as she was um, turning the right age to get her driver's license. Um, and this law is called Kylie's Law. It's named after a, a teenager who died in a car accident in 2006, I think, in New Jersey, where the driver of this car, who was, um, who was I believe, also, um, also killed, uh, had three people in the car, even though he had a provisional license and should have only had one person. Um, and so the mother of this girl, Kylie, who had died, um, decided she was going to do something about this issue. And this law was passed called Kylie's Law, which passed both houses of the Jersey legislature like virtually unanimously. Because, um, you know, who would vote against, you know, saving kids' lives, right? What kind of monster would do that? Um, <laughs> yeah. So what the law did was you had this little decal that was removable that if you were on a provisional license, you had to put it on your license plate when you were out driving so that cops could, you know, see that you were underage and then just look in your car. And if you had too many passengers, they could pull you over real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is crazy for a few reasons. One is um, the driver of the car who um, resulted in the death of those two teens was already breaking the law. So, um, you know, the law wouldn't have necessarily saved her life either because you could still have two people in the car. So two people still could die without breaking the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, you know, if you're a 16 year old girl driving around with a sticker on your car that says to everyone, hey, I'm a 16 year old girl, like that is pretty terrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that's you're essentially like making yourself a target for sex traffickers and, and whoever mm-hmm. else. Uh, mm-hmm. Thankfully, the, the teenagers of New Jersey are a lot smarter than the legislators, legislators of New Jersey in this case. And I think about 80 percent of teen drivers don't comply with the law and it's not really enforced. But yeah. it still hasn't been repealed because, again, who wants to vote for more dead kids on the highway, right? Yeah, that's a tough one, too. And it's really like you're calling it out. Hey, by the way, I'm not old enough to have a concealed carry permit. I'm not old enough to even buy a knife on my own, probably in some places that's mm-hmm. like able to defend myself or mace. A lot of times mm-hmm. you have to be 18. Yeah. So it's very obvious at that point that you're defenseless. And and yeah. I think that's interesting because it. It seems like too, there's a, cause we have a similar law in Indiana that you can only, you can't have a passenger until six months after or something like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And so I've seen times where, you know, people get in a car accident and people run or something like that. And it's just like, I don't know. You, yeah. The problems there I think are issue enough, but it seems like the solution doesn't actually even address the problem in this case that yeah it makes it easier for cops to pull them over, but it really doesn't help teens learn to drive better or be safer drivers in any way. Right. It just calls them out as a target. It's just like the student driver thing. It's I know I, when I see someone with like, Hey, I'm a student driver. It's like, I guess I'm just going to make <laughs> sure my, that I don't get behind you give them a wide <laughs> on the yeah. highway because I'm going to be going 50 miles an hour. That's the only thing that I take into account. Yeah. I'm yeah. still, you know, it, it doesn't really make a difference, I guess. Uh, from that perspective and then half the time it's just the instructor driving around in the student driver car I guess but it I I guess what I'm wondering is you know do you think that these sort of reactions uh, like I guess reactionary policies like with COVID with a lot of times gun laws seem to be very uh, haphazard when they do these sorts of things uh, in reaction to a Mm -hmm. tragic event but you know do they really make for good policy generally I mean or is it sort of short-sighted or haphazard? No, I think there's a, I mean, I think, like I said, I think politicians have a perverse incentive here. 
um, to appear to be doing something, whether it actually helps or not, or, and you know, whether or not it might actually be better to do nothing. Um, and it, I think it takes a lot of political courage to, to do nothing if that's the best choice when people are clamoring for you to do something. The mm -hmm. gun control issue is an interesting one here because, um, you know, obviously I wasn't, there weren't really any mass shootings in the news uh, when I was writing those articles, um, you know, for yeah. once, thank God. But, yeah, uh, you know, with these two recent mass shootings, uh, the one in, in Georgia and then the one, um, where was, where was the uh, other one, remind me? Boulder? Yeah, Boulder, Colorado, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, with those two, uh, you know, I've been thinking about kind of how to apply the, the point I made in that article to this. And uh, I have a few thoughts. Uh, so one that I find interesting is that the narrative didn't become about gun control until the Boulder shooting, mm -hmm. right? After the shooting in Georgia, the narrative was all about white supremacy yeah. um, and, and Asian American hate. And then it turned to gun control after it no longer fit the, um, you know, the, the identitarian yeah. uh, critical race narrative mm -hmm. that was being pushed after the yeah. The shooting in Georgia. So that's one thing that interests me is that the, you know, right, there's the call to do something, right? The the call to action after the first mass shooting was, you know, to stop Asian American bigotry. The call to action after the second one was to pass new gun control legislation. Mm -hmm. So there you run into this issue where the the call to do something isn't always necessarily self-evident, right? It's it's often inflected by sort of narrative and ideological um fluctuations there. Um, but yeah, gun control is a, is a difficult topic for me. It's not something that I'm like as dogmatic about on as a lot of people on the right are. Mm -hmm. um, the way I look at it is like, nobody thinks you should be able to buy a nuclear missile or a fully functional M1 Abrams tank, right? So mm -hmm. everyone's in favor of some degree of weapons regulation. Um, it's just a question of where you draw the line. Mm -hmm. um, so here I would kind of divide it into two categories. There's some mass shootings, I actually wrote an article about this years ago that I'd forgotten about until I was about to come on this and then I looked it up um, <laughs> for like a website that doesn't even exist anymore. Um, but um, so if you take the, uh, which shooting was it? It was the shooting at the uh, Emmanuel uh, Church, um, oh, yeah. uh, Dylan Roof, uh, which mm -hmm. is you know tragic and, and horrifying, but he, um, there was a, there was actually an error in the paperwork that enabled him to buy a gun. He shouldn't have been able to buy a gun under mm -hmm. the gun laws that currently exist. And it was the same situation with the guy who shot up the, uh, the church um, around the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a domestic abuser and the, uh, it was processed through the military justice system when he was in the Air Force and whoever was in charge of that in the Air Force never put it in the national database. So in cases like that, to call for more gun control really isn't to address the problem yeah. um, because existing laws should have already stopped it. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the uh, Newtown, Connecticut shooting, which again was a horrible tragedy, but the shooter, I believe, murdered his mother and stole her AR-15 yeah. um, or, or her gun, which is already illegal. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, murdering someone and stealing their gun is illegal. <laughs> yes. Um, so a case where I'd say that um, the response, just so I don't sound super contrarian, a case where I think the response was actually good was after the Las Vegas shooting, when there was a ban on bump stocks. Because, um, you know, I've fired a gun at a range of the bump stock, and they really have no purpose beyond allowing you to simulate fully automatic gunfire. You can't mm -hmm. hit a damn thing with it. No. Um, the only time it 
has any purpose beyond having fun at the range would be a set of circumstances basically exactly like what you saw in Las Vegas where you could fire indiscriminately into a crowd from an elevated mm -hmm. angle. So I think in that case, uh, it wasn't really much of an infringement on anyone's freedoms and it did genuinely um, kind of make us safer and prevent people from copying those tactics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I still am wary of the bump stock ban. I, I mean, I kind of want one and now I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do want to be, like, there's a show that like, every year in April and October in Kentucky, like a few hours away from me where my dad and our neighbor will go sometimes and they have fully automatic stuff there. And you just like, it was actually that, uh, I think it was the gun show that they were saying was like the warfare in Syria or something after Trump made some uh, like concession to Erdogan. And mm -hmm. then like the Turks were supposedly invading Syria and here's what you can see them doing. And it was just like, Oh no, it's a gun show in Kentucky. Like seeing them <laughs> playing it. And it was just the gun show in Kentucky where they're just like blowing stuff up that like they put yeah, cars yeah. out there with Tannerite and just blow it up for fun. Oh, wow. um, well, you can still bump fire a gun if you, you um, there's a way to do it. If you like put your thumb through your belt loop, I, mm -hmm. I never got very good at it. No, I, yeah. And I mean, here in Indy, we only have indoor ranges, so I can't really learn. You, they don't let you do anything there like, with automatic. <laughs> they don't want you spraying into the ceiling and stuff. Yeah. So. Indoor ranges. Although interestingly at every indoor range I've ever been to, there've been quite a few bullet holes in the ceiling. <laughs> Oh, people, I'm sure get it. That's why, I, that's why they have the rules They're, You know, yeah. I'm sure they're there for a reason, yeah, but, yeah. but yeah, I, I do think that with gun stuff, it, it, it people often just say you got to do something and you can tell there, I think more than anywhere, because you know, if you know about guns, at least you can tell more than anywhere that the politicians know nothing about what they're talking about, because oh, when yeah. it comes to like, you know, the grand economic plans, we're going to put, you know, like a $1.9 trillion spending, like you can't, the lame person cannot go through all of that and say, this isn't going to help economically. I mean, you can kind of yeah. offhand, but you can't, it's hard to prove that because yeah, it's a very big economic model that you have to look at. But when someone says, uh, you know, we need to ban assault weapons, you're like, yeah. well, okay, what's an assault weapon? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Every weapon that's used against somebody inherently is an assault weapon because yeah. you're assaulting someone with it. So, I mean, a hammer could be one. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that that's where the do something debate, I think we people pretty <laughs> much have a good eye to the fact that it's, at least on guns, it's normally not the most effective thing. And a yeah. lot of times it's pretty clear what the problem is. And it's almost always mental health of some sort. <laughs> I mean, when it comes to the mass shootings, obviously with other gun violence, that's different with, you know, gang violence or whatever else, domestic abuse, those are different problems. But mm -hmm. mass shootings generally are mass gang shootings, first of all, or mm -hmm. some mental health issue. And we know the root, but we won't address that, actually. We won't find a way to get people the mental help that they need, for instance. And I guess, how then could we be maybe more proactive? I mean, is there some way to say, hey, here's a tragedy that happened. Let's hold our horses and think about this problem actually and find policy that would really address this issue. If this is such a, if this is an ongoing issue, like what we have with mass shootings or I, I, plenty of other issues. <laughs> well, it's kind of exhausting because, you know, it's, we're, we're to the point where every time this happens, it's just both, you know, both groups kind of go to their corners and nothing happens really. Um, you know, where I think there's, I think there's a case where, you know, you have um, like 
uh, where you have Republican politicians who want to stay in the good graces of the NRA, who are unwilling to consider something that might even be a common sense mm-hmm. gun reform. So, you know, the only reason the bump stock ban passed was because the NRA eventually got behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have uh, then you have Democratic politicians who just want to pass something, whether it actually addresses the root problem or not. Um, and whether it'll actually reduce gun violence moving forward or not. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's really just not good incentives on either side to, you know, have a, a reasoned kind of policy debate about what the best way of doing this is, um, because it's, you know, it's kind of becomes all about posturing for your base, um, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Uh, yeah. And it's, this is a tough, like, this is a tough issue for me because I, I truly, you know, I, I truly don't find the status quo to be something that's acceptable, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to, like, arguments I see from my Democrat friends where they're like, look, this is, like, the only place in the world where this seems to happen at, to this level of, of frequency and at this scale, like, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't, I don't really know what you could do with gun control to to reduce that there's already so many guns in civilian hands in this country and there's um so like unless you had some kind of widespread gun confiscation i don't really see any way to you know fix the problem with like the sales of new guns and i absolutely don't want a widespread gun confiscation that would you know require the government to exercise force Mm -hmm. basically nationwide at a scale that i'm incredibly uncomfortable with mm-hmm. um yeah. and it would require a repeal of the second amendment to be able to even yeah exactly usable which i uh-huh. which is not i mean happen. i mean you see we've seen how like how dangerous it's been and how much controversy there's been just over the red flag laws um mm-hmm. where you know we've already had at least one case where someone has shot it out with the cops rather than surrender his guns mm-hmm. and i do not want that happening in every neighborhood in yeah. the country yeah um which is what I'm afraid would happen in that case. Yeah. And, and I do, and I also like do really believe in the second amendment and believe in the value of having an armed, mm-hmm. you know, an armed citizenry. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't know, like, and I mean, there've been, you know, throughout American history, there've been times where it was much easier to buy guns than, than it is now. Um, you know, in the 1950s, you, you know, you couldn't get an AR-15, but you could go get like a, I don't know, a Browning high power with a 13 round magazine and, and, you know, you could buy fully automatic weapons then. Yeah, exactly. We, I mean, we've seen plenty of mass shootings done even with, with semi-automatic handguns. Um, yeah. Columbine. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's, there's, there's something sick in our society, um, that, you know, is, is much bigger than guns. Um, and I don't think it's, you know, necessarily even just, I don't think you can even just chalk it up to individual mental health issues because like, I think there's some sort of contagion that, that goes across our entire society. And, you know, maybe we do all need to, maybe the only way to stop that is to disarm all of us. But at that point, you're just admitting that America is an asylum with 300 million patients. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I actually wrote an article a couple of years back, uh, titled i think it was titled uh, guns don't kill people materialism does and it was <laughs> and it was really just the argument that basically 
what I think you all these people, what they have in common, maybe mental health, but it's always the fact that they dissociate from people so far. I mean, if you look at either that or they have kind of this, like with the Columbine guys, kind of this Nietzschean Superman idea, but also yeah. those generally are dissociative. If you read mm-hmm. Crime and Punishment those and um, yeah. his other works, those uh, not that's not uh, Nietzsche, but that's kind of the answer to Nietzsche from Dostoevsky. But those sorts of problems that we were seeing in the 19th and early 20th century of people who are losing God and kind of yeah. pulling away from that, they dissociate from humanity in a real way. And I think technology has happened, has made that happen more. I mean, we didn't have mass shootings in the way that we see. I mean, we had the okay, the shootout at the okay corral, but again, that's, you know, actual just conflict and gun violence. You had the Hatfields and McCoys, but that's not people going into a stadium or a mall or something and shooting up into like random people. That's very different. We didn't have those sorts of mass shootings until the last like 50, 60 years. So there's something I think in our culture that has changed because and I don't think it's the caliber of weapon necessarily. I mean, that's yeah. somewhat the case. I and mean, that's why they didn't happen in 1776 when you had, mm-hmm. you know, it was like a muzzle reloader and you had to wipe yeah. down the barrel and stuff. That obviously doesn't mm-hmm. vote well. You need probably semi-automatic weapons yeah. at least. But it seems to me, like you said, there's something in our culture that's needs to be addressed at a deeper level than I think policy can really even reach. And I, and I think there's policies that you can enact that help. I think that, you know, you mm-hmm. committed crime with a gun, you know, yeah. you're gone for a long time. I mean, the, like the mm-hmm. fact that you can commit a grime, crime with a gun and be out in less time than someone who is on their like second offense of dealing cocaine or something. Yeah. To me, mind boggling. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how you can get like 10 years or 20 years for yeah. something like that, but you could be out in three when you hold someone up at, at gunpoint. That to me, you know, those sorts of things I think can really be policy prescriptions that help punish gun offenders who are actually offending people and separating that out from the people who are using guns yeah. or keeping guns and doing it responsibly and doing it for recreation, hunting in mm-hmm. case they ever did need to use it in defense, whatever yeah. that may be. Yeah. I like what you said. I like the, I like that headline for your article and I liked your, uh, Dostoevsky reference of course I actually I remember reading somewhere that like I don't think Dostoevsky ever read like actually read Nietzsche at least not at the time when he was writing Crime and Punishment the ideas were just like so in the air that he kind of like and just he sort of like diagnosed what was going on so exactly that it was like exactly as if he'd read Nietzsche which is so mm-hmm. wild to me mm-hmm. um Dostoevsky's a genius but uh anyway um, I've been reading a lot of his stuff I've been reading his shorter stuff and I need to yeah. go back and read Cause I have read crime and punishment in high school, like yeah. reading and spark noting some and all that. Have you read uh, notes from underground? Yes. That is yeah, the most that's I have a, amazing. It, it is. That's actually to me, like the first chapter of that book, I was thinking, wow, I'm so glad that like, I actually did a book review on it. Like this is like the road to hell. You can see this sort of yeah. mentality. And then I was like, man, I'm so glad I'm not like that. And I get like two chapters over and I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's me. Like that's, I've had <laughs> nope, that's that me, thought. Yeah. And, and then you're just like, wow, how sick am I? And I think he does a good job of that. The Eastern church, the best thing about mm-hmm. Eastern Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, yeah, I think is that entunement to the interior life that I think yeah. the West and Anglicanism and these sort of more, mm-hmm. you know, Western European religious uh, parts of Christianity have some other stuff in the mind and then logic and stuff that's very interesting. And I love, 
Like I love Aquinas. You're not going to find him in the East necessarily, (laughs) (laughs) but you don't find the, that like St. John Christendom and some of these people in the (laughs) West, because I, and there are great on both sides, but sure. I don't know. It's just Dostoevsky is just so in tune. It's crazy. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I'm a, so I'm a high church Anglican. Um, but I've been, I've been reading a lot about Eastern Orthodoxy recently. Um, I just actually had the, the blessing of meeting Rod Dreher and getting to talk to him. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it was great, but like, you know, there's a really a lot to love in, in orthodoxy. I remember there's a line and I, I'm going to have to paraphrase it in notes from underground where he says something like, uh, he says something about like someone he knows who's very successful. And he's like, imagine how stupid you have to be to be like successful in this century, you know? Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. And like, I did, you know, I did feel that. Like, yeah. Um, but there's a, you know, this, this is an idea that like comes up in Walker Percy too. There's, um, I don't know if you've read any Walker Percy. He's hmm. excellent. I'm reading a novel by him right now, but he's a Southern Catholic novelist from the um, active from like the sixties through the nineties. Okay. Um, but, you know, brilliant, really funny, uh, really influenced by Dostoevsky, but there's a, a passage in one of his books where he's saying like, he's describing this character who's just sort of the average, you know, later 20th century, you know, suburban man with a nice McMansion and a, a wife and a couple kids and a good job and, you know, comes home, watches TV, whatever. And then one day his uh, wife comes in and he's just sitting in his easy chair screaming and won't stop. And you know, they call in a shrink and everything, but like the idea is like, what's, what's worse to be, to go in, to be, to go insane or to like function normally in an insane world. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, um, and I think that that's, I think that goes back to something with the, the mass shootings, right. Where I think, you know, the, the center of our our society really is crumbling in a lot of ways and you know it's it's probably further progressed in europe than it is in the united states i would say at least in certain ways Mm -hmm. which is why i think in most of europe you do have um you do have really strict gun control laws where you know it's like it's sort of a pink police state right it's just like okay we'll just uh you know declaw you keep you all comfortable while you you know slowly slide into the you know mm-hmm. milk toast uh, oblivion of secular humanism yeah there's one country <laughs> who is is it switzerland or sweden that has pretty robust uh uh gun ownership actually one of those two um i, I think it's yeah it'd be right? that's switzerland yeah i um actually went to switzerland once uh for a couple of days and it was really interesting mm-hmm. um but yeah, everybody, uh, they have universal uh, male military service. Um, so yeah, you go train and then you can take your your rifle home with you uh, oh, wow. actually so that they can kind of call out the militia at any any given moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, Switzerland does have a, a higher rate of gun deaths than most European countries. Most of those are, are suicides um, mm-hmm. as are most gun deaths in the United States yep. actually. Um, yep. It just happens to be the most efficient way to kill yourself. Um, so suicides do tend to go up when there are guns around. Um, I don't know if the rate of suicide attempts goes up a whole lot. If it does, it's just because you sort of have an easier means to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah. and it has a lower rate of survival. Um, but yeah, Switzerland doesn't have nearly the, the problem with gun crime that that we do, but I don't really know enough about like Swiss culture from my one weekend there to really try to <laughs> diagnose why that yeah. is. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think it's a lot more, I mean, a lot of those countries have lower because it's just, I mean, in the melting pot, I think you're going, you just have a good, a, a much bigger clash of cultures here. Mm-hmm. And it, you can see it now, uh, but if you go back 80 years when, you know, the Italians and Irish mm-hmm. were moving here in droves, they were, you know, a big problem that, uh, I think it, it's just kind of as people join the American experiment, there is a bit of that problem with assimilation that yeah. uh, Andrew Clavin talks about this a lot on the Daily Wire, but like with in uh, regards to like The Godfather and Get Out. And it's like there's all these movies that talk about how to assimilate into American culture and what yeah. you kind of lose in doing that. But also you do gain something in the process as well of this American you know, the, that's when you finally are fully bought into the promise of the American experiment, where my grandpa, who was the son of an Im, of immigrants uh, from Ireland, you know, his mom or his mom was like six, you know, like 16 or younger when she came here on the boat and never went back to Ireland. And, you know, he was able to make his way. And, you know, now, you know, his kids and we were able to live the American dream in a huge way because of yeah. the sacrifice that they made. One of the biggest challenges facing our culture today is the porn problem. And that's why I'm proud to be working with Covenant Eyes to help nip this problem in the bud. So if you struggle with porn or if you want to protect your family from this issue, Covenant Eyes can help. Covenant Eyes is an accountability software that helps you create good habits when you're using your computer or other devices that are connected to the internet. And so you can have this plan for yourself, for your whole family, and using my promo code of CONVO when you go there, C-O-N-V-O, you will get your first 30 days free. So head on over to CovenantEyes.com and use the promo code CONVO, C-O-N-V-O, to get your first 30 days free. That way you can start living a porn-free life for you and for your family. Now back to the conversation. But... I, I guess before, we've kind of gotten derailed. I wanted to circle yeah, back. <laughs> Once we start talking Dostoevsky, we, we got to, but, and uh, maybe we'll have to have you back on to talk about that. But yeah, I wanted to, because we've talked a little bit about policies that fall short from actually solving the problem. But can we, are there examples of times where maybe policy has exacerbated the problem that was at hand? Yeah, so I... I'm, I'm really not an economist. Like I've read economics in one lesson. Um, (laughs) I took a microecon class in college, but like, I know that there's, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the economic theory I get exposed to just through work and stuff is very kind of Austrian free market heavy. um, And I don't have as much of a grasp on other economic theories, but I know that there's at least a, a solid case that can be made that the new deal, you know, exacerbated the, the great depression and actually prolonged it. Um, and that's, I think, a good example of the kind of epistemic advantage to doing something that I talked about earlier, where FDR is remembered very fondly by history for the New Deal, mm-hmm. because we can't see the counterfactual universe where he didn't implement it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So yeah, I think there are definitely examples. Another one that's that's really interesting is drug-free school zones, um, where politicians 
you know, came up with the idea of a drug-free school zone where there's extra penalties for dealing drugs next to a school and, you know, well-intentioned, right? You don't want people selling drugs on the sidewalk outside school to kids, but it became this thing where it was a good, it was an easy way to like score cheap points um, in the public perception by making the drug-free school zone bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you know, it'd be like, yeah, vote to reelect me. I'm keeping drugs away from our kids. Right. <laughs> but it got to a point where, you know, you could be nowhere within sight of a school, but technically you're within the, the zone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now you're going to jail longer than you, longer than you otherwise would have been for selling yeah. drugs. Yeah, anytime um, you're in no, this city at all, because the schools are all close enough together. That yeah, basically... there's, so yeah, it became this huge criminal justice issue. Um, yeah, and exactly, like schools are pretty tightly packed in some inner cities. So it became, you know, so obviously it became a discriminatory issue too, because where schools are most tightly packed in the inner cities tend to be minority neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to get them shrunk down, shrank down. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's the English uh, yes. student. <laughs> it's hard to get them shrank down because, you know, who wants to get up and say, like, I think we should let drugs closer to the kids. <laughs> it's just, it just doesn't sound good. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, some some jurisdictions have succeeded in doing that, but it's, you know, it's a hard, a hard sell. I think that's an area where, yeah, it has kind of made the problem. I mean, it hasn't fixed the problem that's created other problems. So, mm-hmm. yep. And, and I think even one time where I think you've seen uh, maybe the unwinding of policies and kind of the do nothing was the doing nothing actually working for someone is Reagan's administration. It seemed to me that, I mean, he obviously had places where he pushed on drugs and that actually backfired in a lot of ways. The nineties were worse than the eighties and seventies on drugs. But as far as what he did with economics, he really, you know, it was, Johnson and Carter and even Nixon too, kind of tightening up our economic system that, you know, Reagan let that go and it ran free. Same with Trump after Obama, you know, all these things that they were doing really stagnated growth and, you know, put us in and out of recessions. But it was kind of, especially with economics, I think that's somewhere where people maybe, most people would see Mm -hmm. the benefit to maybe politicians staying away from it. And, but they don't get the glory of it either when it, they do. It's not because a lot of times it takes a little while for that to pay off and it has a lasting effect. It's not like, you know, an immediate turnaround of there's this new harsher penalty and all of a sudden, you know, there's this precipitous drop in crime yeah. because there's a much harsher penalty for guns or for domestic violence or dealing drugs near schools. You can see like, oh, in one year, they just moved where they were dealing the drugs like a mile out. Yeah. So. <laughs> Now they're not near schools, but we have half as many bus near schools or on school grounds. You know, those types of things you can point to, but you can't point to the economy that grows over time because you've kind of, you know, loosened the reins a little bit or loosened the leash. Yeah, it's tough, you know, especially with economic issues. There's so many right factors involved that it's, you know, you can you can kind of spin a narrative however you want just because it's so um, overdetermined, I think is the word, mm-hmm. right? Um. Mm-hmm. Yep. But yeah, no, I think that's great. And I really enjoyed your article and everything. And I know we're kind of coming to time here, but I wanted to give you the chance if there's something that we haven't covered on the article that you wanted to make sure that you mentioned. I feel like we've gone through it pretty well, but... Yeah, I think so. Great. Well, 
Yeah, Great. well, I think um, I think one one good thing to keep in mind, um, you know, is uh, this doesn't apply necessarily universally, but I I just want to name drop G.K. Chesterton partially. Um, but I love uh, I I know you were reading Orthodoxy recently. I listened to mm-hmm. part of your review of that. Um, mm-hmm. But the idea of uh, Chesterton's fence, where have you have you heard of that? Yeah, where. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a fence in the middle of the road and the one reformer comes along and says, ah, I don't see why this is here. I'm going to tear it down. And the other, you know, wiser guy says, well, if you don't see the purpose of it, I'm definitely not going to let you tear it down. Like, go think about why it's here. And if you can come back and tell me why it's here, then you can tear it down. Yeah. Um, so I think that's always a good test to apply before, you know, doing something, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. I, I think even when I was probably at my most libertarian uh, mindset, I've kind of moved back more towards, uh, you know, the less radical libertarian as far mm-hmm. as uh, everything goes. But even at the most radical point, I think that the fence was always something for me that kept me in a somewhat conservative mindset because I recognized at least that I didn't have all the answers. And I think I didn't yeah. have all of the uh, all the insight that I needed to say, yes, we can do away with this or yes, we can abolish the government and, you know, abolish the state kind of thing. I was like, oh, there's probably going to be a lot of repercussions that I'm not going to foresee because I don't think you can write a single, you know, regulation from the EPA without a bunch of unforeseen problems. I feel like like that that progression, too, is something that a lot of people have gone through over recent years. Um, Just like I know so many people that in 2012 were like, dude, you got to read Atlas Shrugged. And then, you know, in 2018, they're like, yeah, maybe we should have a Catholic monarchy. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> exactly. I don't know why yeah. that's a thing, but like yeah. it definitely is. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that there was I, I think that there was a frustration with the I don't know. I, I don't I don't know if I could fully diagnose it, but it seems mm-hmm. to me like there was a frustration with a liberal regime. And then you saw mm-hmm. Trump in this kind of MAGA type movement come mm-hmm. in and move people in the right direction and make an argument for the cultural things because I think that that's what really changed on the right side of the aisle is now you have, I would say the right side of the aisle split mostly over whether or not cultural issues matter. You know, you have kind of the more traditional conservatives that say we have to make sure that we're pushing back against drag queen story hour and, you know, all these other issues because they affect other things in our society that are very important and we have to protect the family and all these things and kind of your more libertarian conservatives or libertarians in general that say you know drugs should be everywhere porn yeah. should be everywhere <laughs> and just free up the economy and we'll be good yeah and and i think that that's where the divide is now because there's a very yeah very sharp divide really on that so this side is of things. yeah so i know we're coming to time let me let me plug <laughs> plug something a project i'm working For on sure. as we and i actually have a podcast slash youtube channel of my own called mm-hmm. the bench um, if you search that plus my name, it'll come up. Uh, you know, please, nobody watches it. But if 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 you do, dear viewers, please do. Uh, if you want to. Um, but I'm sort of grappling with this exact problem where, like, you know, I I was never, you know, I was never fully on board with Trump. Um, you know, there was a I had a brief I had a brief spike of enthusiasm for him around the time of the Kavanaugh hearings, but. Um, you know, because I was feeling very combative at the time, right? But I do think that that's kind of the the tipping point there, right? Or the the um, the inflection point is like, what do we do about these cultural issues? Because there is this widespread sort of recognition that like 
our culture is drifting in a particular direction. And if it if it's allowed to keep going, it will it will continue in that direction until it it goes off a cliff, right? And at that point, it doesn't matter if there's seven cameras on the new iPhone, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like it it doesn't matter if the like one thing I always say is like it doesn't matter if the iPhone can if you can point your iPhone at the room and make a map of it if it also means that every 11 year old in the country has now been exposed to hardcore pornography, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, like there's this temptation to say, okay, well, the culture's drifting in this direction. We need to use the state to arrest that cultural drift. And I think that project's been a failure, right? I, I, I don't think four years of Trump has resulted in any real progress on that. Now, I do think that the, the judges he was able to appoint are going to be huge in that area. Um, and I think only time will tell because again, you know, you can't see the counterfactuals, you can't see the future. I think only time will tell um, whether those will outweigh kind of the, the other ways in which I think Trump has, has damaged the cause he was supposed to be promoting, right? Because I mm -hmm. think that, you know, after four years of Trump, the, the cultural forces he was supposed to be holding back or stopping, he ended up just pouring gasoline on. Mm -hmm. um, so, right, I don't want you know, it's not worth it to me to have five cameras on the iPhone if it means it's going to do what it's doing to our society. But at the same time, I don't, I think that the movement to use the state to arrest that cultural drift has failed. Mm -hmm. So what that means to me is that it's, it's on us, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of what my podcast is about. It's about building community. And I just don't think there's any substitute for, you know, getting off your ass and, you know, going to, you know, joining a church, um, you know, volunteering at your parish, right. Um, you know, getting to like going out and like meeting your neighbors, um, and, and really getting involved with things, uh, and really building communities that can sort of give you some meaning and identity in life that goes beyond just either your political identity or what you watch on Netflix, uh, or order on Amazon. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I think that's great because that's definitely something that I talk quite a bit about here is I think that there are things that you can do at the government level, but I think most of what you have to do on the cultural front, what I've seen the left do on the cultural front is <laughs> incremental change and changing standards, not through government policy, but getting into schools and educating, making sure that they hold the reins of education and you know, make, infiltrating churches and changing the way churches teach, you know, you, it's yeah. a lot harder to do it to the Catholic church. And then maybe some, when you can just be like, pastor Joe's gone of, out of this evangelical church and now it's <laughs> pastor Jill. And she, you know, is it, like you, when you can just yeah. change pastors and that changes the church's teaching, yeah. that's a big difference. And so, yeah, they, they've done a good job of that. And I think that you can push back the other way and say, <laughs> we're not going to let that happen. I'm not going to let that happen to my family. And then I'm also not going to let that happen in my community. And, and, out, yeah. and you build out from there. And yeah. that, that to me seems like the way to do it. Yeah. It starts at home. Uh, Rod Dreher said something in a recent article that I thought was really insightful. It was, again, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember, but it was something <laughs> like, if you stormed the Capitol building to save Christianity in America, but your own kids, you know, graduate from high school and never go to church again, 
Hmm. You're not saving Christianity in America, right? You didn't do the work where it mattered. Yep. Exactly. I I think that's huge. And I think, yeah, we need a more rigorous, we'll have to have you back. I'll have to have you back on or come (laughs) on yours because I could talk about this all day of what we need to do on the cultural front, because I, I just, it's definitely a huge issue, but I think, well, I want to give you a chance to let people know where they can find you and some, you know, your podcast and any, anywhere that they can read your articles and all that. Yeah. So um, I'm blessed with a very unique name, so I'm pretty easy to find on Google. Uh, Grayson Quay, G-R-A-Y-S-O-N-Q-U-A-Y. Um, like I said, I've, so I've got, you know, freelance pieces all over the place. And uh, I also have a podcast that's called The Bench. So if you search that in conjunction with my name, that'll come up. And yeah, I'd, I'd love it if you'd uh, check some of that stuff out. For sure. And check it out. I'll make sure that show note, or that the links are in the show notes. And thanks for coming on today, Grayson. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Nick. I appreciated the conversation. It was really enjoyable. And so thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you got a lot out of it. 